You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 27. The road goes ever on. Hello and welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. So we've arrived at last at episode 27. This isn't a particular milestone or a special episode. I was just looking for a way to open the show. I'm not running out of ideas. You're running out of ideas. Anyway, speaking of the show, we've got a good one. Four. Four things this time. We have three wonderful short pieces, starting with our former co-host and traveling man Ryan Connell, writer and stay-at-home bike mechanic Jenny Lynn Ellis, and someone new to the show, Lonnie Allen, a comic book artist and art director over at Suspect Press. And did you think I forgot the song? Did you? Did you? I didn't. We have one from Bear Brilliant. But before we begin, though, I am going to ask a favor from you. Yes, you sitting there with your carrots and hummus. Would you like to help out the show? Sure you would. Who wouldn't? Here's what you can do. Go to whatever podcast app you use and rate and review the show. You can say something like, Denver Orbit is really fucking great, or whatever you want. You do you, as the kids say. Let's just go ahead and get started. We'll begin with Ryan Connell. After getting priced out of Denver, Ryan Connell went on a sort of a spiritual quest. And of course, I made him take a digital recorder with him. He was back in Denver recently and sat down with me and shared some of the tape he recorded and his thoughts on his journey. My ex-girlfriend likes to say that I'm a Christian when I'm drunk. That is to say... I think that whiskey opens old wounds for all of us, and God is the one breakup that I just can't seem to get over. So six months ago, when I packed up my old Subaru to experience firsthand the religions of America, obsessively attending every church service and spiritual gathering that I could find, I knew it would give me a better academic and sociological understanding of what we call religious studies. But when I'm really honest with myself, I have to admit that this trip is in actuality a quest, a pilgrimage to really, honestly, look for God. I suspected it to end up like Geraldo opening Al Capone's vault, or a parent checking their child's closet for monsters. See, there's nothing there. Go back to sleep. I would finally be able to let go. Luke 17.6 says you don't need more faith. There's no more, there's no less when it comes to faith. You just gotta have faith. So far, I've attended more than 50 church services, including the one that my father pastors in Arizona. And I are very honored this morning to have some guests with us. First of all, my youngest son is here somewhere. I think he's hiding back there. He's hiding. He's hiding. Oh, here he is. The variety is truly fascinating. The age of the church or more precisely the age of the congregation in that church, 
gives hints as to the history of Christianity in America, from consecration to consumer enterprise. It is deeply interesting, at least to me, to see how 2,000-year-old rituals evolve and are infused with the surrounding culture. The ideas are ancient, the language medieval, the music Coldplay. But as for me personally, it's all a little too clean and neat for me to fully trust it. Their god is just a bit too prepackaged, glossy, bite-sized, a simple PowerPoint explanation. I confess I am moved by stained glass and incense, but I suspect it's just because it's old and feels sacred. More often than not, I feel like I'm being sold something, and that just does not personally satisfy. It feels like the difference between tracking game through the wild and picking up some beef jerky at the gas station. Though the Christian church is America's main spiritual outlet, I have brought in my own search as far and wide as possible. I've stood in vortexes, lingered at metaphysical fairs, sat silently in synagogues, and I've been on a literal witch hunt since I left Orange County. I have had tarot readings. First we have Five of Cups. Uh, the Five of Cups is Venus Road figure. Even a pretty uh, awesome past life regression uh, hypnotherapy uh, session, which is a mouthful. I breathe in deep, silent awareness at a mountainous Buddhist temple. But I'll tell you, my transformation came during the times when I was not looking for it. At the Santa Cruz boardwalk where they filmed The Lost Boys. At a haunted house. Walking by elephant seals on a beach near Big Sur. Or in the streets of Chinatown in San Francisco. while enjoying good coffee and street music at a farmer's market in Washington. I cannot tell you anything of God, but what I can tell you is the fact that we are alive and able to bear witness to the world around us, and that's an amazing and mysterious thing. We have the divine power to see, to hear, to taste, to touch, to smell, and that is sacred. More than that, it is real. It's right here. It is available to you now. It's all a matter of being aware of it, exploring, diving in, soaking up, relishing and celebrating and respecting and delighting in the fact that I am in this time and in this body. 
that we are all equally struggling and grasping and stumbling for understanding, that we are all here experiencing life for the first and perhaps only time. I want to enjoy it as much as I can. God may exist in the realm beyond our senses, maybe not, but my physical senses are enough for me to feel a deep spiritual sense of gratitude for the unlikely instance of my birth. I'm still out on the road. Like Whitman, I'm inquiring, tireless, seeking what is yet unfound. Just now more fully prepared for surprising moments of joy, like that sunny day at a park in Chicago, when I thought I heard music and went to explore. Ryan Connell is a vagabond writer exploring the nation's religious landscape looking for the God of America. At present, he is joining with suspect press writers and friends of the show, Josiah Hesse, Amanda E.K., and Alessandra Ragusin, doing readings and collecting stories of lost faith all throughout the South, East Coast, and Midwest. To read more from Ryan and find out ways to support his travels, check out theholyapostate.com, and you can email him at holyapostate at gmail.com. To find out more about the tour and where you can catch up with these heathens, check out facebook.com slash unapologeticstour. And at this point in the tour, they've run into a rather large vehicular snag. So if you're interested in helping them out financially, I'll link to their GoFundMe in the show description. Next up is a writer and a friend of mine, Jenny Lynn Ellis. This is her essay, Fighting Woman. Fighting Woman. We called our mother Mama, not pronounced Mama in the American way, but Mama, as it sounded in Iceland, with a pause on the combined M's. She forbade our calling her Mommy, the indignity of the American word implied by her mocking tone as she said it. When I was small, I only ever called our mother Mama. The second syllable turns upward in my memory, holding the shape of a question, of hope, and home. Mama. When I was little, Iceland was the scent of sulfurous water that clung to my father's skin after he returned from a trip there. My mother's island home was the smell of smoked leg of lamb, a frozen red haunch wrapped in foil that had been smuggled past customs then softly boiled to anchor our feast on Christmas Eve. 
Iceland was a dragon-shaped map on our dining room wall. And Iceland was the place that held my mother's name, simply and crisply, Mamma. So Mamma was the answer I gave when a neighbor in our D.C. suburb asked me my mother's name. He reintroduced himself to her, and they laughed at my not knowing her real name. Embarrassed by my ignorance, my mother taught me, syllable by syllable, how to say her name properly. She wrote it down, and her handwriting, so elegant and even, was itself a lesson in correctness. She had me repeat her name over and over until it rolled off my tongue with sharp R's and a crisp Icelandic rhythm. Most grown-ups, including my father, called her Ragna, using open vowels and mushy R's. But I knew how to say her full name. Ragnhildur Gruðrún Fimpjönsdóttir Ellis. Ragnhildur, Fighting Woman. My mother fought in correctness, both in pronunciation and in behavior. She fought the dulling ordinariness of American culture, with its casual manners and sloppy clothing. At night, through cycles of peacefulness and of combat, she simultaneously fought my father and alcohol, her berating voice rising and falling for hours. Then came the thump of her shoulder hitting the wall after my father shoved her hard and staggered to the front door and escape. She fought to hide the bruises, but showed them to me when I came out of my room to try to take care of her. Year in and year out, she was fighting woman. She fought hard for the steady sanity she gained in her 60s. Now that I can see the pattern of family illness, diagnoses lined up like breadcrumbs in the woods, I know she fought cyclical depression and psychosis. When I was growing up, I sometimes thought she was a monster, but the monsters were in her head, and as strong as she was, she couldn't defeat them. lives and writes in Denver and in Fair Play. She takes classes at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and just started a blog, themorewrite.net. Would you like to have something put on the show? Yes, you over there with the LaCroix and the messenger bag. Well, we put lots of things on the show. Music, memoirs, poetry, essays, documentaries, radio pieces, avant-garde soundscapes. Why, just about anything. We've even had novelizations of bad movies. So feel free to reach out at denverorbit at gmail.com or on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash denverorbit. Also, do you like to look at complete nonsense on the internet? Well, good, because I like to post it. 
lots of it. Head on over to Instagram and look up old Denver Orbit. You won't be disappointed. Confused, maybe, but not disappointed. Next up is the band Bear Brilliant with their song Good God Golly.
Bear Brilliant started with an idea. What would it sound like if every instrument played was on a ukulele? That idea blossomed into a full sound, more instruments, and a fun mix of folk, surf rock, and indie vibes. You can see them next week uh, on Thursday, September 20th at 9 p.m. at the Docky West Film and Music Festival at Barfly in Alamo Drafthouse Sloan's Lake. And that's a free show, so you have no excuse. None whatsoever. You can find more from Bear Brilliant on Facebook, Spotify, iTunes, or Bandcamp. And as usual, I will have links to all of that in the show description. Last but never least is the only person who works at Suspect Press who hasn't been on the show, Lonnie M.F. Allen. On top of being the art director there, he draws brilliant illustrations. He has a series of brief histories in that magazine, and this is the adaptation of his brief history of John DeLorean. Good evening, this is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. It's a story of big business, big pressure, big money, and the crime of cocaine. It's the story of how and why the FBI caught automaker John Z. DeLorean. A brief history of John DeLorean. The DeLorean DMC-12 is one of the most iconic cars of the 80s, due in large part to the movie Back to the Future which was the highest grossing film of 1985. The film would have been a boon to the DeLorean Motor Company, except that it was released close to three years after the company had already filed for bankruptcy. John DeLorean was born in 1925 in Detroit to immigrant parents. He attended public schools and was later accepted into the prestigious Lawrence Technical University. World War II would disrupt his studies, but he returned from military service to find his mother and siblings in dire financial woes back home. DeLorean decided to go on to finish his degree at Lawrence while employed part-time at Chrysler. He received his Bachelor's of Science, then later a Master's in Engineering, all the while obtaining an MBA in Business. He went to work at full-time at Chrysler. He revealed himself to be a brilliant engineer, so competitor General Motors lured him over where he would be one of the designers of the highly successful Pontiac GTO, the highest selling cars in what many considered to be the first manufactured muscle car. At age 40, DeLorean was the youngest division head at GM, and at 44, DeLorean was earning 200000 a year, about $1.3 million today. With success, John became more cocksure sporting long sideburns and unbuttoned shirts. He made appearances with pro sports teams like the New York Yankees and dated Hollywood celebrities. He soon began to clash with the more conservative executives at GM. By 1973, John was fired or quit, depending on who you asked. Soon after, he formed his own car company with his namesake. Of course, it takes a lot of money to start a car company. DeLorean received initial investments from celebrities such as Sammy Davis Jr. and Johnny Carson. To save on cost, he decided to construct a plant in Northern Ireland because of its cheap labor and because of an investment from the British government of $125 million. Belfast, Northern Ireland, late last month. Newsmen here getting their first look at a new sports car to be produced in suburban Dunmurry. It's the biggest industrial news in this troubled province in years. Northern Ireland's Minister of Commerce... The British government was hoping to ease its tensions with Ireland by alleviating Irish unemployment. 
The scheduled release of the DMC-12 was early 1979, but construction of the plant itself didn't begin until late 1978. Further delays came from having unskilled employees tasked with doing skilled work with highly technical machinery. Many of the DeLorean plant workers were never even employed before working there. When the first units of the DeLorean were finally shipped in 1981, they undersold. Poor reviews, a high sticker price and the cost overruns made the first and only DeLorean Motor Company vehicle a financial failure. John went back to the UK for more investment money, and what followed is a matter of debate between the British government, the FBI, the DEA, investors, and the US courts. But John DeLorean was arrested in 1982 for conspiring to smuggle 24 million US dollars worth of cocaine. He was later acquitted of the charges, but the company had already filed for bankruptcy by that time. In the following years, DeLorean faced 40 lawsuits and was finally forced to sell his 434-acre estate which Donald Trump at the time purchased and converted into a golf course. As for DeLorean, some say he failed because he became like the Detroit executives he despised, driven and finally desperate for success. John DeLorean died in 2005. His tombstone depicts a DMC-12 with its gull-wing doors opened up like angel wings. It's not for me to say you love me. It's not for me to say you'll always care. Lonnie M.F. Allen has been involved in zines and mini comics since high school in the early 90s, eventually rising to a level of prominence in the local Denver comic scene and the cartooning community. An oft-published illustrator, writer, and designer, and for the past eight years, Lonnie M.F. Allen is known as the organizer of Denver Drink and Draw, a weekly gathering of comic artists. His work has appeared in Image Comics and Dark Horse Comics. He's been nominated for a prestigious Eisner Award, won a dinky for outstanding work, by a Colorado creator, and named as one of the 100 Colorado creatives by Westward. He's currently the art director for Suspect Press and a comics creator for the Colorado Sun. And that's it. That's the show. There's nothing left today. As I've already stated, I am Josh Madness, and I produce and edit this thing. And we, I, I realize I've been switching back and forth between we and I this whole show. Well, I am not going to go back and change it now. I will see you again in two weeks. And that's it. Goodbye. You hang up first. No, you hang up first. With every passing day Or we may never meet again But then it's not for me to say Oh,